As Riley said, it's retreat in two weeks' time. Crazy. And if you do have dietary requirements, make sure you put them in. I've put mine in. I'm going to be eating fast food only um, all weekend. If you have any special requests like that, I understand. Apparently, I saw on SG Giveaways there was a paleo bar left here last week. If anybody found that, it is mine. And they're my favorites. Um, <laughs> I didn't even know a paleo bar existed. What does it actually have in it? Like nothing. Do you just open it? It's just air. Oh, wow. What, what, what's actually in the paleo bar? <laughs> what is it? Caveman food. <laughs> oh, my. Unhappiness. It is. It's the taste of sadness. You open it, you're just like, it's sadness. <laughs> oh, my. Well, if you are a guest here this morning, we do take church very seriously, as you can tell. So thank you for being here. And let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. If you're making notes this morning, which many of you do, I've called this message more than a name. So we're presently in a series going through the book of Exodus, run about week and about 28, I think, out of what's going to be 52. So we're kind of over the halfway mark. And the whole storyline of the book of Exodus is all about what it means to be drawn out, to be drawn in. Drawn out of bondage and slavery, to be drawn into a relationship with God, to know Him as Father and Redeemer and Friend and Savior. And here in Exodus chapter 20, we find ourselves at the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments that so often have a bad rep. But Ten Commandments, which are a glorious, gracious path of life. They're a gift from God to us. As he seeks to care for us as his children, as he seeks to help us and seeks to help us understand how we're to live, not only for his glory, but for our good. And today we're going to be looking at the third command. And so we're going to be spending time in, in one verse, chapter 20, verse 7. But to understand it and see the context, let's start reading in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out to the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind to us in the way you talk to us. You don't leave us guessing about you. You don't just show us creation and pull the curtains back on what you've made and say, see, you, you know all about me now. You give us your word. Your word that's unchanging. Your word that's sufficient. Your word that's necessary. Your word that can change our lives. And Lord, I do pray that that would be the enduring effect of your word today. Lord, would you open our eyes to behold the wonders of your law. Change our hearts. 
change our lives? Would we love you more as a result of these words? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, being a Christian, so I was thinking about it this week, it is an incredible thing, is it not? To stop and pause and to consider what it means to actually be a Christian is amazing. See, chapter 19, verse 4, God tells us that to be a Christian means that He bore us on eagles' wings and brought us to Himself. I mean, just imagine that. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's your story. At one time in your life, He bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Himself. That's a staggering reality. The Bible's clear. That we were at one time in our lives under the power and penalty of sin, and we were in chains to it. We couldn't get out of it. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't erupt from our bondage to go and follow Jesus. We couldn't do anything. And we were dead to that reality as well. But God in His grace came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He sent us His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And He made it clear when you put your faith in Him, He will bear you on eagles' wings and bring you to Myself. It's a staggering reality. And so we hear a lot at different times about how Christianity is a pilgrimage. And I think sometimes we can get this idea in our mind, because it's a pilgrimage, it's just going to be so hard. And I've just got to hang in there, but God's faithful. It's a lot more than that. I can assure you it is a lot more than that. It is the greatest race of our lives and it is the greatest privilege of our lives. Because to know you have been saved means to know God. He brought you to Himself. He forgave you of your sin. It was removed as far as the east is from the west. He redeemed you and reconciled you to Him. You can know the Creator of heaven and earth personally and individually as Redeemer and Saviour and Friend. He not only bore you on eagle's wings, He brought you to Himself. And then He adopted you. I have two foster kids who I dearly love. God the Father not only fostered you, He adopted you. People who were once in bondage and chains, running away from him, uninterested in him. He bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself. And then he said, and from here on in, you're going to be my sons and daughters. I love you. You're my children. I'm rejoicing over you. I'm singing over you. In chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, we discover that we are the treasured possession of the Lord among all people. As he looks over all the earth, he looks on at all his children, he says, you, it's you, you are my treasured possession. You're the apple of my eye. You're the people I think about the most. I love you. And you are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And it's when you realize this backdrop that the Ten Commandments, I think, begin to come alive. They begin to take on a whole new aura in our minds and they begin to make so much more sense. It's then we get to realize that these Ten Commandments, they're not an abstract group of rules from a distant and far-off master. They're the gracious and loving instruction of a kind father who sits us down around Mount Sinai and says, Listen, I love you. I saved you. And now I want to teach you and show you how it's going to go well for you and how you can live for my glory and your good. I want it to go well for you. 
And so he sits us down around Mount Sinai and he gives us some instructions. He tells us, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, that background, it makes so much more sense. God loves us as his children and he knows all these other gods, they're fakes and frauds. They will just disappoint us. They will never deliver as promised. Church, you will be wasting your life to worship these things. So God says, have no other gods before me. I want to be first in your heart. I want to be the apple of your eye. I want to be the main thing in your life. And in that same vein, you shall have no idols in your life. Not only those made with your hands, but those made with your hearts as well. Why? Because I love you. And these idols, they won't deliver. They're fakes and frauds as well. If you start pursuing them, instead of getting on the grace race of your life, instead of enjoying me and knowing me, you will replace me with something else. And that something else will promise so much, but it will never deliver. It will always disappoint. And so I always want to be the apple of your eye because all these things will fake you and fraud you and will hurt you. And I don't want that for you, because I love you. And then we get to this third command, when he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And if we're honest, the gravity and seriousness of this particular command is so obvious, so often not so obvious for it, is it? We'll just wait until they shut that door. Can you just shut that door? Can you pull that door? You can't pull that door. Okay. Ignore that door. Eyes on me. You get to the third command that you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And if we're honest, the gravity and the seriousness of this particular command is not so obvious, is it? You get the first two, it kind of makes sense. You know, not love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, have no other gods before me. Yes, that makes sense. Ensure that you have no idols. Yes, that makes sense. But what is the problem with a little bit of swearing? Why is trying to watch what I say so important within these commandments? I so sure, okay, I won't do it. I won't blaspheme. I won't take the name of the Lord in vain. No big deal, no problem. But what's kind of the fuss all about? Well, my friends, in all honesty, as biblically defined, taking the name of the Lord in vain is a massive and serious thing before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Oh my goodness, to God, blasphemy and taking the name of the Lord in vain was a serious thing, not only for the Israelite, but for the guest as well. Not only for the native, but for the sojourner. Whoever they be, if they are in this land, if they take the name of the Lord in vain, if they blaspheme, you take them out the gates and you stone them. Wow, what sobriety, what gravity. And the question I want to seek to answer then this morning is quite simply, why? Why was this such a big deal to God? Why does it appear right here as number three in the Ten Commandments? Why was this such a big issue to the Lord himself? And what exactly then does it mean? 
Because maybe it means a whole lot more than you and I initially think it means to take the name of the Lord in vain, which is why it's such a big deal. So three points this morning as we seek to unpack this commandment. Number one, what does this command mean? Number two, why is this command so important? And then number three, how should we apply this command today? Because we do want to apply it. It still speaks today. And it's here not only for the glory of the Lord, it's here for our good as well. Three points then, and here's number one. What does this command mean? What does it actually mean? What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? Well, vain, as it is rendered in the ESV, can mean several, several different things. It can mean to empty something of meaning. It can mean to bring something to nothing. It can mean to count something as worthless or to use something for no good purpose. In the ESV, all the words, that, all the times it mentions vain, it can mean any of those different things. And so what does it mean in this context? What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? Well, here's what it means in a nutshell. It means to use the name of the Lord in a way that is either frivolous, wicked, or insincere. In a nutshell, that's what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. It is to use his name in a way that is frivolous, wicked, or insincere. See, make no mistake, this does not mean then that we should never use the name of the Lord. We should never use the name of Yahweh. That's what many Jews started to believe. Just in case we misuse it, we would never, ever mention his name. No, that's not going to work out. In the Old Testament, his name, Yahweh, is mentioned over 7,000 times. We're clearly meant to use his name. And if you ever want to try and have a relationship with somebody where you never call them their name, it gets kind of awkward. You know, it's just, it's just them. There's no name. It doesn't exactly speak of intimacy. God wants us to know his name. He wants us to use his name. But what he doesn't want us to do is to misuse his name. And in the Old Testament, there was a broad category of sins that fell under this commandment and prohibition to ensure that we not use his name in vain. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, blasphemy and cursing the name of the Lord was completely wrong. As I said there just a few moments ago in Leviticus 24, verse 16, it's clear that we must not blaspheme or curse the name of the Lord because when we do, particularly in the Old Testament times, they would then proceed to drag you out the gates and stone you, the whole congregation. A massive deal before the Lord to take his name in vain through blasphemy. We're also within the Old Testament, there are prohibited to use the name of the Lord in empty and false oaths. Hosea chapter 10 verse 4 says, They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. And Leviticus chapter 19 verse 20, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. See, it was commonplace in Old Testament times for people to say things like this, Jeremiah 5 verse 2, as surely as the Lord lives. So people would make false oaths and false promises that they had no intention of keeping, but to help give sobriety what they're being asked to do, they'd say, yes, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do that. And yet they had no intention of doing it. It was a false oath. It was a lie, but it was bringing God's name into the equation and using it falsely to try and support that, yes, I will do something, when in reality I won't. 
using His name in vain. Another way they prohibited this command or ensured that they didn't break it was to ensure that they never use the name of the Lord in false visions and prophecies. Thus saith the Lord, when thus didn't saith the Lord. And yeah, that's the way they were using the name of the Lord. In Jeremiah 14, verse 14, it says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination and the deceit of their own minds. They were using the name of the Lord in vain by saying, thus saith the Lord, when thus did not saith the Lord. And yet the people are responding to their voices, yet their voices are lies. And God's making it clear that that's using my name in vain. I didn't say that. But you're claiming I did. Also sorcery. You know, I hadn't really thought about sorcery too much before this week, particularly not in this context. But sorcery is actually a direct violation not only of the first commandment, but actually the third commandment as well. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. See, sorcery has to do with the occult. And in the ancient world, many people believed that they could gain access to supernatural powers by using divine names in incantations. So if I could just use the name of a divinity in an incantation, then I should be able to access these supernatural powers. So they did it quite a bit. So in Acts chapter 19, for example, you have the Apostle Paul, he's praying for people, and he's praying in the name of the Lord, and they're getting healed. It's amazing. And then he's encountering people with demons in him. And he's saying, in the name of Jesus, be gone. Guess what? Those demons are coming out. They are fleeing the name of the Lord. And so there's this group of guys. They're called the Sons of Schema. I love that. Even the fact that they're called Schema. They are worse schemers. The Sons of Schema come on on and they they watch what Paul does. And they're like, this is sweet. Now, they're not Christians. They're not seeking to follow the Lord at all. But they're like, this is sweet. I see what he does there. He prays for people. He says, in the name of Jesus. Boom. Boom. It works. So they started to have a go. I love it. They prayed for this guy who was demon-possessed. And they went up to him. They went straight up to him in confidence and said, in the name of Jesus, come out. And this demon did have a few things to share with them. And this demon responded to them and said, I know Jesus. I don't know Paul, but I don't know you. And this demon-possessed man completely kicked their butts right there and then. He beat them up, he strips them naked, and they run off in a screaming, girly mess. That's what happens there. And the whole point is, God is helping him see, I will not be mocked. My name isn't some like some spiritual incantation that you just say, and boom, like a genie in a lamp, it happens. You're not going to use my name like that. Sorcery was a way then of seeing the name of the Lord be used in vain. People who don't know the Lord, their hearts are far from the Lord. Just think if I add these words to something, it will happen. And God says, I'm not going to be mocked like that. You're not going to misuse my name like that. In the Old Testament, there was a broad category of sins that fell under this commandment and prohibition. And to use then the name of the Lord in these ways and to use therefore his name in vain was and still is a big deal before the Lord. Why? Why was it such a big deal? Well, that's point two. Why is this command so important? And here's the point. This commandment was so important 
Because his name is so much more than just a name. This commandment was so important to the Lord for us to honor and treasure and understand because his name is so much more important than just a name. Because his name in his word is always synonymous. His name is always on a level playing field with his personhood, his character, and his being. The very name of the Lord was to talk about his very personhood and character and being. You could not separate the two things. And so to take the name of the Lord in vain was to take his character and personhood and being into vain. As if God is no big deal. As if he's worthless, maybe even a fake. And to use his name then inappropriately was to say something about who he really is and was and always will be. As God makes it clear, you may never use my name like that. It's never to be trifled. It's never to be emptied of its value and worth. Because within my name, there is so much more than just a name. And oh, my friends, what a glorious name he has, don't you think? I mean, if you look back to Exodus chapter 3, if you want to turn there for a moment, Exodus chapter 3 is the moment in this whole book where we get introduced to God in his name. Moses is standing before the burning bush. He sees it from afar on Mount Sinai. He goes towards it and he sees that this bush, it is burning, but it's not being consumed. And then he hears a voice coming from the bush. Moses, take off your sandals. For the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Moses is about to encounter God himself. And he's about to hear the name of God himself. He was on holy ground. And as God starts to talk to Moses and he says, Listen, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. I want you to talk to Pharaoh and demand that he lets my people go. I've heard their cry. I've seen their affliction. I want to go after them. Moses, it's time and I'm going to use you. And Moses straight up is like, God, I can't go. But if I'm going to have to go, at least tell me, who am I going in? Who are you? When they ask me who you are, what do I say? And this is what God says to him. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. My friends, what a glorious name he really has. And if you remember back to when we preached through this topic and this issue, there is so much encapsulated in the name I am. In the name I am, we learn that God is above and beyond us in each and every way. He's above the nations, he's above creation, he's above even the greats. He is the great I am, the ego of me. No one is above his precious name. When he says I am, it's a revelation that I'm above and beyond everybody else in every way. 
Likewise, we saw he was gloriously independent and self-sufficient, all revealed in his name. Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, the greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. But God says simply this, I am who I am. I love that. Everybody else in the world is completely dependent upon him, but not God. He can just completely be who he is. And I am who I am. Even the bush that was burning, it says very clearly, the bush was burning, but it was not being burnt up. Why is that? Because God was seeking to reveal to them, I don't even need this bush to burn. I can do it all by myself. God is completely self-sufficient and completely glorious and He is wonderfully unchanging. That's why it doesn't say, I was who I was or I will be who I will be. It just says, I am who I am. And throughout all generations then, past, present and future, my name will always be my name because I do not change. God is completely unchanging in His greatness, in His majesty, and His sovereignty, and His power, and His splendor. And He's completely unchanging in His mercy, and grace, and kindness, and love. All that is wrapped in His name. And so, oh, what a name! What a name! It is so much more than just a name. It is synonymous with His personhood, and character, and being. And so no wonder then, He does not want to see this name trifled as if it's no big deal, and we just use it in vain. Because we're talking about God here. Yahweh, the Lord. No wonder he does not want his name used in vain. And no wonder then, as the scriptures unfold, his name is so highly exalted in the highest possible terms, don't you think? I mean, when you think about the theme of his name through scriptures, you realize, oh my goodness, it is always held highly and aloft. So Psalm 8 verse 1 says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your name that is synonymous with your personhood and power and being and character. How majestic is your name, O Lord. Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And Psalm 103, verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, absolutely every grain of my being, bless his holy name. His name that is synonymous with who he is. I'm going to bless it and praise it because to praise the name is to praise you. No wonder then Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, when he's teaching us how to pray, pay attention to what he says. He's teaching every single believer how to pray. These are the first words out of his mouth. Pray then like this, chapter 6, verse 9. O Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Very first thing out of his mouth. You want to pray well to God? Well, here's where we begin. Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To hallow something means to consecrate something, to set something apart. And so, Lord, before I even pray for anything, Lord, oh, Lord in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, help your name, your personhood and character be completely consecrated and set apart in my heart and my mind and my life. 
because you're holy and you're unchanging and you're far above me in every single way. It is a thrill to know you. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The name of the Lord is an incredible thing as biblically defined. That's why in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, the apostles proclaimed the following. They said, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In the book of Romans then, chapter 10, verse 13, Paul follows it up. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you get the themes? Name, name, name. His name is an incredible thing. His name is synonymous with his personhood and character and being. And everybody who calls on his name, they will be saved. He will save you. And then the Apostle Paul himself in Philippians chapter 2, he takes us to the last days, to the final moments when we meet the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's giving us a picture of the last moments, the culmination of all history. And he's saying at the very name of Jesus, the name of Lord himself, every single knee will bow. And every tongue will see him for who he is and they will confess him as Lord. My friends, we serve an incredible God And there is so much more to his name than just a name. It is synonymous with his greatness and power and splendor. It is synonymous with his personhood and character and being. So no wonder then he wants to ensure that we not use it then in vain. Emptying it of worth. Emptying it of value. Considering it's no big deal. Of something worse. Using it to lie. Or using it maybe to lie against. So how then, number three, do we apply this command today? What does this look like today in our lives? How can we ensure, as Christians in 2019, that we not use the name of the Lord in vain? That we guard our hearts and guard our minds and guard our lips from ever using his name in a way that's frivolous or not important or empties it of worth. Well, there are three ways in particular that I think we can do it, that I think we need to do it to ensure that we not use his name in vain. And here's then the first. If we're committed to not using the name of the Lord our God in vain, then number one, we need to ensure that we never use his name in a way that is frivolous. To use something in a way that is frivolous means to use it in a way that lacks seriousness, Lacks value, lacks depth, lacks worth. It's just frivolous. It's flippant. It's no big deal. And whenever we use his name in a frivolous way, we are without doubt taking his name in vain. We're diminishing his glory in the heavenly realms and we're diminishing him in our hearts as well. We're making him smaller than he really is. As it just becomes frivolous. No big deal. It's just a name, right? No. 
it's not just a name, right? It's far more than that. And so blasphemy and using the name of the Lord in cursing is completely wrong. It is abhorrent before the Lord. Using the names of God and Lord and Jesus and Christ as curse words, that's abhorrent. And we should hear those words like something in our heart should ring and go, ah. It'd be like somebody using the word in a joke, just joking about the Holocaust or joking about rape. And there's something in our hearts at that point that goes, oh, that's inappropriate. Or the punchline of a joke is, yeah, he was a pedophile. Ah. And you hear it and you just think, no, that's really inappropriate. The same should happen when we hear people using the name God or Jesus or Christ as just a throwaway line and we go, ah. no, no. This is the name of God. This is Yahweh, the one who was and is and is to come. This is the one who bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to himself. This is the one who died in your place. This is the one who gave you life. This is the one who spins the galaxies. How dare we use his name in some type of frivolous way, just as a throwaway line or as an exclamation point on something that's gone on in our lives. It is so much more than that. Philip Ryken, in his wonderful commentary, he says, as Christians, we need to watch our language. Most Christians try not to curse, at least not out loud, or at least not when anyone else is listening. But it is not uncommon for church-going people to use mild oaths, like, God darn it, good Lord, oh my God, and I swear to God. Some people think that these are manners of expression, but in all reality, they are really just a more polite way to swear and to bring the Lord's name into vain. Friends, they are. They are simply more polite ways of swearing. But each and every time, we're bringing his name into vain because we're communicating to those around us, it's no big deal, it's just a name. It's just the way I speak. Or maybe it shouldn't just be the way you speak. Because he wants to be the apple of your eye. He wants to be first among people. He wants to be the main thing in your life. And whenever you speak like that, you're failing to bring him glory and you're diminishing him in your heart all the time, making him no big deal, maybe even irrelevant in your life. Blasphemy and cursing, using the name of the Lord, it should never be named among us. Likewise, careless and carefree use of the Lord's name, as if it's no big deal. You know, I was reading Kevin's, Kevin DeYoung's book this week, The Ten Commandments, just a wonderful little aid. And he talks at one point about how the Lord convicted him he has six kids and he's sitting around the table and they're all arguing, they're slapping each other on the face. He's just like, guys, let us just, you know, give thanks for the food. So Lord, thank you for the food. Okay, guys, tuck in. And how he felt convicted in that moment that in all reality, he's using the, name Lord, the Lord's name in vain because he's just using as if it's no big deal. It's just something we say before we get on. And it's kind of funny, but as he's talking about this story in the book, the Lord convicted me of exactly the same thing because I'd done it just two nights before. I don't have six kids, I have five. It's just as bad, the same thing happens. You sit around the dinner table, it gets crazy, it gets loud, there's lots going on. Even the dog is trying to jump up on the table and eat the food. You're like, oh my goodness, Lord, thank you for food. Okay, guys, tuck in as quick as you can. And I was genuinely really challenged and provoked that I don't want to do that anymore. Because I don't want to be communicating to my family and I don't want to be communicating to God that to be honest, you're no big deal. This is just a line I say, an incantation that I say before I eat. 
I think when we do that, we take the name of the Lord's name in vain. We must never use his name in a way that is frivolous. And just as an aside, I'd also add to that, I think we need to be careful as well about gifts that we're posting, things that we're sharing online, movies that we're seeing. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and the, the, the Life of Brian came out. And I didn't even know what it was, but it was a Monty Python version of the cross and all that type of stuff. And my parents told me, I must have been about 12, and my parents told me, you will never see that. And I'm like, why? What's the fuss? Well, son, that's our king. And that's our Lord. And as I got older, when I fell in love with Jesus, I didn't want to see it. And yet, oh my word, how easy things like that become humorous, become a joke. So we have a little picture of Jesus on our dashboards with a bobbling head. It just becomes funny. I think that's disgraceful. Because that's our king. That's our God. That's the Holy One of Israel. He will never be first in our hearts if we treat him like a joke. His name should never be used in a way that is frivolous. Second way I think we ensure that we don't disobey this command and therefore use the name of the Lord in vain. If we don't want to use the name of the Lord in vain, then number two, we need to ensure that we never use his name in a way that's false, in a way that's not true, not only frivolous, but also false, effectively using his name in a way that it's provoking lies. And so obviously, lying under oath is not to be done. We should never be standing in a situation and putting our hand on our hearts or on the Bible and saying that I swear to tell the whole truth when in all reality we're not about to tell the truth. It's using the name of the Lord in vain. It's completely wrong and sinful before the Lord. Likewise, using God's name to falsely advance our agenda. <laughs> That's really wrong too. I mean, I grew up in a, in a very Pentecostal church. I think we did this all the time. Because as soon as we really wanted something, here's what you say, the Lord's told me to do it. Well, that's a bit of a stumper for friends and pastors. Well, if God's told you to do it, what do I can't do? I told, I told my parents about 10 different times, well, the Lord told me she's the one I'm meant to marry. Maybe what can I do? It sort of stumps every piece of counsel that's out there all of a sudden because God told me, it's me and him. I've got this one-way line and he told me, even worse, listen, the Lord's told me that you need to do this. See, my friends, there is a time and a place, don't get me wrong, without any doubt, where God speaks to us and he directs us and he puts things in our hearts that we're meant to do. Definitely. So on the way, he guides us in our hearts. But that is always meant to be held in tension with the other ways he guides us in Scripture. And we put them all together and that's how ultimately he guides us. So yes, he does speak to us. That's a wonderful thing. But he also gives us his word. He should never be speaking to us about something that counteracts his word. And one of the things we learn in his word is that victory is made sure in the midst of many counselors. So if I really sense the Lord's put something on my heart, that's great. He'll confirm it through other people as well. So I'm going to chat to other people about, hey, listen, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about doing that. What's your perspective? What do you think? Would you pray for me in this? And we're also meant to use common sense. It's one of the most often <laughs> missed gifts in the Bible. It's called Common sense. God doesn't expect us to check our brains out when he's calling us to do something. 
And we put all those things together, and that's ultimately how he guides us. So I don't want you to think for a moment that God can't speak to you and direct you to seek to do something. He does. I want us to be attentive to that as a church. But we must guard our hearts from using his name falsely to advance our agenda. So using it in such a way that we're saying, hey, listen, back away. God's told me. That is minimally stupid. Don't do that. It is minimally stupid. And at worst, it's taking his name in vain. It's claiming he's told you to do something when if you're honest with yourself, he hasn't. He's given you a sense. But the truth is, eating too much cheese and drinking too much wine can give you a sense as well. And our hearts are deceitful above all things. And so we need to play that into the party as well. That, hey, my heart is sometimes going to want for something. And sometimes it can be hard then to discern the difference between God speaking to me and me wanting to serve an idol. And so I need to get other perspectives. Hey, help me see. Do you really feel this is what the Lord's put in my heart? Or is there anything you're seeing in my life? That's wisdom. We need to guard in our lives from using his name to falsely advance our agenda. See, we need to ensure that we never use his name in a way that is false. Sometimes that means using his name in a false way, saying that he's asked you to do something when he hasn't. But another way we can use his name in a way that's false is by accusing him of things that are false. Claiming things about him that simply aren't true. See, in the storms and trials of life, I think it can be so easy to make the mistake of thinking in, within that storm, God is absent, he is uninterested, and he is indifferent. Israelite has already faced this. When their backs are against the Red Sea, their instant reaction is, see, you don't care. You're not bothered about us. You brought us here to die. We were better off in Egypt. The mistake they made is in that moment they should have stood firm and trusted him and understood God is with me. He tells me he's with me. I can see him. I'm standing firm and I will not fear. They didn't. They started making accusations against God. If you're real, you would be helping us right now. If you really cared, you would not be seeing me go through this. If you were really present, you would be here. Where are you now, big guy? And my friends, I think 2,000 years on, we can do exactly the same thing. Our backs get put against the wall and we can find ourselves in fear and anxiety. Instead of trusting him and standing on his word, we come out fighting. Where are you? We start complaining. You know what else we do? We start telling others about our complaint as well. Yeah, well, I just don't sense God's with me right now. I don't think he loves me. don't think he cares for me. I don't think he ever has. Each and every time such words come out of our mouth, we are blaspheming and taking the name of the Lord's in vain. Why? Because we're telling people things about God that are not true. He has been with you. He's always been faithful. He sent his son to die for you. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, I think wonderfully. He says, There is certainly a right scriptural way to lament and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But to be angry with God, or as some will tell you to need to forgive God, as if he had sinned or crimed against you, 
is to call into question his very works and character and so profane his name. And my friends, so it is. To be angry against God. But now and again you touch somebody and they say, yeah, I've just got to come to the place where I can forgive him. Forgive him? Did he sin against you? You know, at different times when we go through trials, I get it. I get it. I get we can be anxious. I get we can be overwhelmed. I get we can be fearful. I get all of that. I'm just like you. But in that moment, we must stand on truth and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Because if we don't do that, we will inevitably take the name of the Lord in vain. And we will start to complain to people about, see, God isn't anywhere. He isn't present. He's not with me. He clearly doesn't love me. They're all lies. And to think that somehow you need to forgive God? You know, there are times in the last 19 years of pastoral ministry when you encounter somebody that's angry with God. And as I said a few weeks ago, for me personally, this is just one of those that as people start to rant against God, you just sit there and you're like, do you know who you're talking to? He's the great king. He's good, but he's not altogether safe. Do you know who you're talking to? And married with that is also this sense of you clearly don't know who you're talking to because he's everything other than what you're claiming him to be. And it can be both shocking and heartbreaking. But each and every time what they're doing is taking the name of the Lord in vain. We must not do that. We need to ensure that we never use his name in a way that is frivolous. We need to ensure that we never use his name in a way that is false. And then number three, we need to ensure that we never use his name in a way that is phony, that is fake, that is fraudulent, that is hypocritical. You know, Jesus himself addresses this in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 8. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is what he says. He says, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You hypocrites. You're fakes. You're phonies. You stand and you sing and you do all the right things, but your hearts are far from the Lord. And it's clear in commandments one and and two that the Lord having our heart is a massive deal to him. Have no other gods before me. Why? Because I want your heart. Israel, I want to have your heart. I want to be first in your heart because that's what's going to bring me glory and that's what's going to go well for you. And Israel, I don't want you to have any other idols in your life because they're fakes and frauds. They will disappoint you. They will not deliver. You're going to ruin your lives and I don't want that for you because I want your heart. Because that's how you'll be used for my glory and that's how it's going to go well for you. The scribes did not have the Lord in their heart. They're going through the motions, but their hearts are far from him. And in doing so, it is using the name of the Lord's in vain because it's claiming something with your lips which your heart simply doesn't believe at all. So Lord, I love you. But I'm going to go give my life however I want things. I want to do whatever I want. Fake. Phony. Hypocrite. 
You know, in the Old Testament, you were stoned for that. Praise the Lord, we didn't live then. You were stoned for those things. If you were blaspheming against the Lord, if you were claiming something with your lips, that in reality your lives were lived in gross sin against for Him, it wasn't like, hey, another chance. You were dragged outside and you were stoned. Why? Because the Lord's name would not be mocked. If you're going to use the name of the Lord's name on your, vein, on your lips and say, I love Him, I want to follow Him, but then stand in direct opposition to His word and do what you want, He will not be mocked. Dragged out the camp, stoned. In the New Testament, we no longer stone people. But we do take people through church discipline. Because that's the way the Lord designed it in the New Testament within the context of the church. People that are saying, oh, I love God, I'm a brother or a sister. But then are clearly living in gross sin away from Him. And you address them about it and they say, yeah, I just don't care. So you address them again about it and you say, brother, but this is wrong. This is biblically wrong. You you mustn't do this before the Lord. And they're like, well, I am. I'm going to do it. Okay. Well, we're putting you out of the church. And we're going to tell the church. Why? Well, because that's what the Bible tells us to do. Why? Is it to shame them? Is it to mock them? Is it to hang out their dirty laundry to everybody? No. It's for two reasons. Number one, it's for their good. It's to try and bring them to their senses so that they may start to feel the effects of being outside of the family so they may be able to see it was so much better there. I've started sinning and worshipping this false idol, but it's not delivering. As I've been taught all along, I want to come back. And what a happy day it is when they do come back, which is what you're always praying for. Church discipline is designed to try and help people to come to their senses, but it is also designed by God to protect the splendor of his name. He will not be mocked. If you're going to use my name, then I want you to be riveted to by my word. He will not be mocked. He will righteously defend his name and appropriately, church, so should we. And so as Christians, for the glory of his name, it's so important then that we truly worship God, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. That what we proclaim through our mouth is also reflected in our hearts. Why? Because it's when we live that way that he's truly glorified. That we're living as his treasured possession. That we're living as his royal priesthood and a holy nation. And secondarily, it will be used for your good. No one ever wins when they live as a fake. It's a desperate place to be. Pretending that you're somebody when you're not, that will only bring you to ruin. And so God doesn't expect us then or or consider that we're going to walk perfectly before him each and every day, each and every minute. He knows we're not, which is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in our place. There is only one who has ever lived, who has obeyed the law perfectly, and his name is Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, he bears us on eagles' wings and brings us back to himself. And then when we're back with himself, he says, listen, let's chat. I love you. I see you through the perfection of my son. And now through his perfection, I'm calling you son as well. And this is how it's going to go well for you then. 
Obey my voice. Do these things, not only for my glory, but for your good. My friends, if you're here today and you are messing about with God, claiming something with your lips, which in reality is a fake, stop it. It is abhorrent. And you should appropriately be ashamed of yourself for that. It's fraudulent. But more than anything, you're also ripping yourself off. Because there's so much more for you. And his name is Jesus. And he wants to meet you. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And you will discover as you begin to follow him that all these false idols that you thought would bring you so much are fakes. And now you found the real thing. And his name is Jesus. Don't waste your life. Follow Christ. My friends, what we have here before us today is the gracious path of life. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he has already bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to himself. And then he's given you this gracious path of life. So by his grace then and for his glory, may we live this path. It's for his glory. And it's for your good. It's a gift. We will never be able to walk this by ourselves. But yet not I, but through Christ in me, I can do all things. So dependent on his grace, a grace that has brought you safe this far, and dependent on his grace to sustain you through this life and imagining future grace when he will see you home. Grace never ends. Dependent on his grace, may we work hard to walk on this path for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is wonderful to know you. For amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Lord, I thank you that your grace has brought us safe thus far. Your grace has brought us out of sin and slavery. And now we sit around your mount and we listen intently as you communicate to us as Father. Lord, I thank you then for your word and I thank you for this gracious path of life. May we follow it and may you receive all the glory and may your grace Your glorious grace always win the day. In Jesus' name, amen.